welcome to a brand new edition of Problematic Women. I'm Virginia Allen, and hosting with me today is Rachel Del Judas. Welcome, Rachel. Thanks, Virginia. Up on today's Problematic Women, Pennsylvania State Legislative Representative Wendy Ullman called an early miscarriage just a mess on a napkin. John Legend has rewritten the song Baby It's Cold Outside with new lyrics that are more hashtag me too appropriate. HHS proposed a new rule that would lift a grant ban on faith-based adoption agencies. The conservative millennial Ali Stuckey shares her wisdom for young people and how she's balancing being a mom and having a powerful career. And as always, we'll be crowning our Problematic Woman of the Week. Each week on Problematic Women, we sort through the news to find stories that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women. Those whose views and opinions are often excluded by those on the so-called feminist left. If you are a problematic woman or just someone who supports strong, independent women, please consider supporting us by leaving a review and a five-star rating on iTunes and encouraging others to subscribe. It really does make such a difference. All right, let's jump right in. House Bill 1890, a bill that would require healthcare facilities to either cremate or bury unborn children who have died from an abortion or miscarriage, is trying to make its way through the Pennsylvania House of Representatives. At a House Health Committee meeting discussing the bill, several were shocked at the callous claim by Pennsylvania State Legislative Representative Wendy Ullman. I think we all understand the concept of the loss of a fetus, but we're also talking about a woman who comes into the a facility and is having cramps and the not to be not to be concrete an early miscarriage is just some mess on a on a napkin. And I'm not sure people would agree that this is something that we want to take to the point of ritual, uh, either cremation or internment. Several women responded to Ullman's comments with their own personal stories of miscarriage. On Twitter, Tammy Weather said, That mess on a napkin was my child. That mess on a napkin would be 29 years old. Perhaps you might choose your words more carefully the next time. I and others like me grieve our children, whether you understand that or not. And Tom Shaheen, vice president for policy for the Pennsylvania Family Institute, said a miscarriage, no matter how early, does not result in a mess on a napkin, but the loss of a child. Each human life deserves respect, even when lost at an early state in development. Speaking about the bill, Shaheen added, The remains of human beings should be treated better than medical waste. Representative Frank Ryan's bill is a compassionate effort to help offer some closure to many women and families in Pennsylvania. A similar bill to House Bill 1890 was passed in Indiana and upheld by the U.S. Supreme Court as constitutional. At the same time, the bill is still in review and has not come to the floor for a vote just yet. So, Rachel, if you could talk to Representative Wendy Ullman about her comments, what would you say to her? I mean, how how do her comments dismiss or make light of women who have gone through through a miscarriage and are still grieving that loss? I just think it's incredibly tragic to call a woman's child that didn't make it a mess on a napkin. I think it's so out of touch, um, especially for the state lawmaker who is a woman and presumably a mom. I'm not quite sure what her background is um, in her personal life. But to say that women who, you know, miscarry their children, that, oh, this is just something like a mess on a napkin that needs to clean up. Like we think of like spilling milk or spilling food, like, oh, I'm just going to like get this paper towel or this napkin and just wipe it away and it's going to be fine and we're going to move on. And sadly, I mean, when moms have miscarriages and a lot of times, you know, siblings are involved, they know a a sibling has been lost. That's a very impactful situation in life. And for her to say that, that's very demeaning and it makes light of something that is honestly a death in a family. While it might not be someone like a grandfather or a parent or a sibling who has been around for a while and people have gotten to know, you still feel a very tangible loss. I mean, on a personal level, my mom had three miscarriages after I was born. So I think that she had the three after I was like about 12. So I was old enough to know what was happening, um, old enough to know what an impact it had on my mom. And for one of those um, 
miscarriages, she actually lost a lot of blood and almost didn't make it. So not only is this demeaning to moms who are losing a child, but sometimes when moms have miscarriages, it can be a very life-threatening event just because something happens and um, they're, you know, they're compromised physically. So I think she's a little bit out of line here and we need to have more understanding and compassion, especially as women to fellow women and moms in our lives who go through things like this. Yeah, I'm thinking, you know, that moment when you're told you're pregnant instantly, you exactly. know, you're you're starting to prepare emotionally, your body's preparing physically. There's so much going on in in your heart and mind and, you know, whether that is a month into the pregnancy or 8 months in, it's still incredibly traumatic and something that, you know, we need to be supporting women through that process. So, definitely um Ullman should have used should have chosen her words more carefully. Mm -hmm. uh, It's really too bad. But Rachel, why do you think that asking clinics to bury or to cremate unborn children is so controversial when this bill won't even restrict abortion access? I think it's astounding that it is so controversial. And I think part of it, and maybe this is just my opinion, but if we take a step back and think about this uh, for a minute, is that we've become a culture that is so just like abortion, uh, morning after pill, um, and killing an unborn child. It's become commonplace. And so I think that now that, you know, some legislatures are considering, oh, well, you know, what about burying a child or cremating and actually treating it like a person? I think there's part of society that I don't know maybe if they're shocked or they're um, convicted or maybe it's a little bit of both. But I think there's this response like for so long and maybe it's like maybe it's kind of like subconscious. I don't know if some people even realize it. But I think some of this has to do with the fact that we're just like, wow, you know, we're treating these unborn children. We haven't treated them as humans. And now there is this call to treat them like humans. And people are somewhat shocked by that because we haven't been for so long. I mean, since 1973, abortion has been legal commonplace and we haven't been treating um, these lives with dignity or respect. And so I think that's where part of this pushback is coming from. Um, And I think it's just sad to see, like, we should be able to treat these unborn humans that, you know, didn't make it as, you know, treat them with dignity and respect and give them a barrel. I know people, um, even for myself and others who take this very seriously, like they've, you know, gotten a plot in a cemetery for their child that passed away through miscarriage. Um, I know others a little bit different of a situation, but for stillborn babies, my dad's an artist and he's been commissioned to do paintings of babies after they've, you know, been buried. There's been photos maybe taken in the hospital room and just being able to have that closure and honoring the child as a person and not just like some passing thing that didn't make it because they are they are a person they're part of a family um, and that family has a story to tell and by not acknowledging it I think it um, in a lot of ways I've just seen this in my own life and other people's lives it kind of stalls the healing process and I think by recognizing it it helps that healing process to to start and to continue and to come to fruition so um, I just think it's sad that we're seeing this be so controversial when it shouldn't be controversial. I mean, you, as you mentioned, Virginia, it doesn't restrict abortion. So giving them a proper burial should be something that should be commonplace. Yeah, no, you're so right. I think it allows for a woman to take steps towards closure of of recognizing, OK, this this was a life. This was my child. And I want to honor them in this way, um, though their though their life was very short. Yeah. Rachel, thanks for sharing some of those personal stories about your mom. Oh, well, it's, it's, I think it's helpful to talk about sometimes uh, in life, things are hard, but looking back, uh, I think sharing our own stories, it helps other people heal and find common ground um, and share those experiences as tough as they can be. So thank you, Virginia. Well, we're going to switch gears a little bit onto something a little bit um, of a little bit lighter, better news here. There is a new rule proposed by the Department of Health and Human Services that is an incredible win for religious freedom and for children living in foster care or in need of adoption. This new rule rolls back the hastily made policy of the Obama administration that blocked religious adoption and foster care agencies from receiving federal government funding if they stood behind their belief in marriage being between one man and one woman. The new rule says that the federal government won't discriminate in their grant giving against charitable organizations that refuse to handle adoptions for same-sex couples. All federal non-discrimination laws enacted by Congress will still be enforced in awarding grants, 
and sexual orientation and gender identity are not currently covered under non-discrimination laws enacted by Congress. White House advisor Kellyanne Conway said, I don't want to discriminate against anyone. I want groups to be able to continue their work without being discriminated against. Tony Perkins, president of the Family Research Council, said, Under the proposed HHS rule, faith-based adoption providers will no longer have to choose between abandoning their faith or abandoning homeless children because the government disapproves of their views on marriage. However, there are LGBTQ activists who are not happy with this proposal, arguing that it is a discriminatory act that would hurt a marginalized population. So, Virginia, I'm curious. There's one argument from the LGBT community that is saying that this proposal will limit the number of homes that kids can go to. Do you think this is true? I think it's the exact opposite. What we've seen is that legislation is passed that says that Christian organizations have to offer adoption to same-sex couples, that you know those agencies are put in an incredibly difficult position where they're forced to choose between their religious convictions and doing their jobs, helping the children uh, that they so desperately want to help and that it's their job to help. And I mean, for example, Catholic Charities has had to close a number of their organizations all over the country because of this, because they they refuse to bend on their faith. Uh, We saw that when the state of Illinois cut off its partnership with faith-based agencies after Obama's rule, Uh, 1,500 foster homes were lost. And that is so many children that could be placed that really overnight, um, you know, there's all of a sudden this this lack of of foster homes, something that there's such a desperate need for. And right now, you know, in in the foster care system, there's about 440,000 children across America. Uh, That's according to the U.S. uh, Children's Bureau. And just in 2018, we saw about 10,000 more children enter the foster care system than exit. So, you know, we we can't be looking at this through a political lens. Our lens has to be the children first and, you know, what what is the option? What is the legislation that is going to allow for the most amount of adoption and foster care providers to be able uh, to do their jobs, to be able to serve, to be able to love kids well? So, yeah, this this argument from the LGBTQ plus community is is just simply inaccurate. I'm curious to your thoughts on the fact and you mentioned this briefly, Virginia, but the fact that this has become more about politics than it what's really what children need and what children's rights are. I was actually talking to a friend of mine who is looking to adopt with her husband, and she was telling me um, just how. People are waiting in line in this country to adopt, and there's so much that has to happen when it comes to, you know, reviews and home visits and all that, which is like good good steps that are in place to make sure children uh, and foster children are going to good homes. But she was talking about how in, you know, so many other countries, it, the process is so much quicker. So I feel like there are so many ways in this country where we could just make the process more streamlined to get these kids to adoptive families and foster homes. And so do you see this also, as you mentioned briefly, about this being more about politics than what's best for kids? Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, within uh, the world of adoption and foster care, there is so much red tape. Uh, it's it's very expensive. It's, it's difficult. There's a lot of hoops to jump through. So that's certainly something that, that needs to be improved, needs to be streamlined. Um, while, of course, still upholding very high standards to make sure that we're protecting kids. Um, But yes, no, uh, we're seeing that adoption and foster care has become sort of this political football that people throw around because kids are young and they don't have a voice. And so it's it's easy to quickly make it political. And, you know, I, I understand the argument that same sex couples should be able to adopt and whether or not, you know, you agree with that or whether or not I agree with that, like I I I understand, you know, that perspective. But last night I took just about 30 seconds and Googled, you know, uh, adoption agencies that offer services to same-sex couples. And in about 30 seconds, I had a list of like 40 organizations. So it's not hard to find organizations that will work with, with gays, with lesbians. They are out there. They're more than willing to work with them. So it's, it's foolish then that we would say, well, but everyone has to abide by these rules. You know, it's, it's okay 
for the faith-based organizations to only work with the families that they feel comfortable working with because there's plenty of options out there for everyone. And again, it has to come down to at the end of the day, we have to be placing the needs of kids first. Exactly. There should be space for both. And I think in a way, too, it's a little bit arrogant and a little bit out of touch to make a social movement about, I know, marriage and gender equality all about, you know, forcing that on kids and saying, oh, we're going to fight this battle and make our kids suffer. I just think that's it's out of touch and honestly uncaring. Yeah, I agree. All right. Well, we're going to take a quick break because I want to tell you about one of the other awesome podcasts that we have here at the Heritage Foundation. If you ever find yourself overwhelmed by the 24-7 news cycle, you might want to check out the Daily Signal podcast, which brings you the top news of the day every weekday. I co-host the Monday edition with my colleague Rob Bluey to bring you interviews with lawmakers, authors, and conservative activists. And of course, we always start your week off right on Monday with a good news story. So if you're a conservative who wants to be on top of the news, check out the Daily Signal podcast available every weekday morning. All right, welcome back. Rachel, cue the Christmas music. Hey, baby, where you going? I really can't But baby, stay. it's cold outside. I've got to go but away. But baby, it's cold outside. This evening has so been so happy that you dropped so in. very nice. I'll hold your hands. They're just like my ice. Is it too soon? No, it's no, music? it's Virginia. In my opinion, it's never too soon. And I, I'm just like I feel like I'm smelling Christmas trees and Christmas cookies baking right now. I can see snow falling. Like I am. I haven't honestly heard a Christmas song yet this season, so that was my first one of the season. And given that it's November and it's we're like 50 days away from Christmas, I'm very much in the Christmas spirit now. <laughs> I'm getting so excited. I cannot wait. All right. Well, that song was written by composer Frank Lesser and his wife, Lynn Lesser. They performed it in the 1940 duet, Baby It's Cold Outside. The writer and his wife originally performed the song at Hollywood parties before it was featured in the film Neptune's Daughter. Now, since then, the song has been covered by artists from Dean Martin to CeeLo Green. However, you may not have heard it on the radio last Christmas. In the wake of the hashtag MeToo movement, the song has been criticized for being too date rapey and was banned from several radio stations during last year's Christmas season. R&B singer-songwriter John Legend has decided to weigh in on the song's controversy, and tomorrow, November 8th, he will be releasing a reimagined version of the song. John Legend wrote the classic with actress Natasha Rothwell. He says that it's more of a modern and irreverent narrative with a focus on consent. He wrote the song with Kelly Clarkson, and some of the new lyrics include the exchange, What will my friends think? I think they should rejoice. If I have one more drink, it's your body and your choice. Uber and Lyft even get a little free publicity with a few lines that nod to ride-sharing services. Responding to Clarkson's, I've got to go away, Legend says, I can call you a ride, and later says, I'll call a car and tell him to hurry. The daughter of Frank Lesser responded to the criticism of her dad's lyrics by saying, Absolutely, I get the criticism, but I think it would be good if people looked at the song in the context of its time. She added that flirting was a whole different thing in the 1940s. People used to say, What's in this drink as a joke? If you know this drink is going straight to my head, and so what's in this drink? Back then, it didn't mean you drugged me. So, Rachel, what do you think about this? Should Legend have rewritten the song? Is that a good thing? I'm kind of torn about this because I do love this song, and I think it's important to look back at what uh, Frank Lesser's daughter was saying about uh, the context of the song. Uh, it's a classic song. I feel like no one on the radio would hear it today, and it's, it's like it's a Christmas song for the ages. I mean, it's something that we've grown up with, that generations before have grown up with, and I think it's important to talk about that. You know, this is not a song that is in any way um, making anything like date rape or drugging someone or anything like that, making that like acceptable or okay. I mean, John Legend is free to do whatever he wants with his talent for music and you know his work in the entertainment field but 
I think, you know, for him to say that, the, you know, I, it seems like this is sort of like he's wanting to see this as a replacement for Baby It's Cold Outside. And I'm I'm not having any of that personally. <laughs> I'm like, I will keep the original. Let's take it in its context. I'm also bothered um, by the fact that he's including It's Your Body, It's Your Choice. Um, it's I, To me, that's the slogan. Well, I mean, not just to me, but I mean, it has been the slogan of the pro-abortion movement. And I think to throw that in there is just... I mean, again, demeaning of women and just putting it as part of a Christmas song. I mean, I don't I mean, if we're going to talk about consent here, let's talk about, you know, responsible life choices. And honestly, like he also I think John Legend mentioned that he said he was wanting to include elements of consent in this. I'm like, OK, so we're making. Oh, yeah. He said he, want, he it's a more, quote, modern and irre, modern and irreverent narrative with a focus on consent, making a Christmas song about consent like. Let's talk about Christmas and the season and let's not politicize Christmas. I don't know. That's just where my thoughts are at. Yeah. No, I, I agree. It should not be politicized. You know, I, I think what Frank Lesser's daughter said is really critical and very important that we need to remember the song was written in the 1940s and things were very different back then. Uh, and, you know, flirting was very different. And, um, you know, some things that would maybe feel very offensive today just weren't back then. So, you know, I, I feel like I don't really have a problem with John Legend, you know, coming out with a new song, making it fun, but it shouldn't be this, well, we have to kind of forget our past. And exactly. We cancel. can't replace it. Yeah, we no, can't replace you. it. We cannot cancel <laughs> Baby It's Cold Outside. Can't cancel sorry. Christmas. <laughs> it's not happening. Not happening yeah, on my watch. It's just a sweet song. And yeah, like we, we shouldn't be that sensitive that we can't handle a really beautiful Christmas song that was just written in a different day and age where things were different. We have to recognize the differences today, but we'll see. John Legend's song comes out tomorrow. I'm really excited to hear it. I, I'm a huge fan of Christmas music. So, you know, if it's really good, I'll enjoy it and I'll enjoy listening we'll to it. We'll have to see. It's but. not going to be better than the original. I am kind of staking my reputation <laughs> as a lover of Christmas music on that. So we'll have to see, but I'm pretty sure it's not going to be as good as the original. Yeah, no, you're probably right. All right, we are going to take a quick break, but when we come back, uh, we're going to share my interview with Allie Beth Stuckey, who is also known as the conservative millennial. Do conversations about the Supreme Court leave you scratching your head? If you want to understand what's happening at the court, subscribe to SCOTUS 101, a Heritage Foundation podcast breaking down the cases, personalities, and gossip at the Supreme Court. I am joined by Ali Stuckey, political commentator and speaker and host of the Relatable podcast on Blaze TV. Ali also has a blog called The Conservative Millennial. Ali, thank you so much for joining me. Yes, thanks for having me. So, Ali, you call yourself the conservative millennial. What led you to start speaking out so boldly on conservative public policy? So that's kind of the name that I use or the title of the blog that I used a couple of years ago when I started. Since then, I've kind of moved on to mostly be known as the host of the podcast Relatable, but that's still the moniker that a lot of people know me by because when I started in 2015, and I know that doesn't seem like very long ago at all, it was even a little bit more scandalous or surprising then to hear what seems like a paradoxical term conservative millennial. Now, thankfully, even though it is rare to be both a conservative and millennial, there are a lot of conservative millennial commentators. I'm certainly not the only one. I'm not even one of the only ones. There are a lot of young influencers with conservative views that are very outspoken. This past um, election cycle and this presidency, because there's been so much to comment on and so much to analyze and so much to talk about, there have been a lot of young people that have spoken up and said, hey, I am countercultural too, or I'm against the mainstream. I'm kind of swimming upstream as well. So, but when I started it, there were only, there were only a few that people really knew. And I started it because I lived in a college town of Athens, Georgia. I was working full-time in DR, and I looked around at the college students that were just, you know, a few months younger than me at the time or about a year younger than me at the time. And I said, okay, all of these very educated people, probably with conservative backgrounds, 
they tend to lean left or just not care about what's going on in the primaries. It was the primaries at the time. And so maybe I could do something about that. I've always loved to speak in front of people. I've always loved to write. I've always kind of been passionate about really, I would say, worldview issues more than policy-specific issues, but how it fits into the larger Christian and conservative worldview, each of these uh, specific policies. So I decided that I was going to come up with, at first, a nonpartisan presentation for why young people should vote in the primaries. And so as I was working full-time in PR, I came up with this presentation, uh, a Prezi presentation, and I reached out to sororities. I knew that was one group that I could probably relate to pretty well. I reached out to sororities on UGA's campus and said, hey, can I come to your chapter meeting and speak for free about why you should vote and why you should vote in the primaries? This is totally nonpartisan. And it was at the time. So some sororities answered back, said yes, some said no, some ignored me. But I went to a few. And really, after that, I just realized, oh, my gosh, nothing else in my professional life has given me this much energy and this much assurance of, yeah, this is meaningful work that I want to do. This is something that I feel like God has gifted me in and something that I really like. And so I decided, okay, maybe I can kind of pursue this as a little bit of a side hustle uh, for a while. And so I decided to start a blog that's obviously not nonpartisan called The Conservative Millennial, and I would just comment on, on the debates and analyze different things. I remember one time I made a, a flow chart for people, for young people to try to decide whether or not they should vote Republican or Democrat. And that kind of went uh, in a very small way viral because it actually helped people understand which side they're on. And I just kind of thought to myself, I love this. I love being a voice in this. And for a long time, it was really just a hobby. I wasn't getting paid in any way, wasn't getting paid to write articles. I wasn't selling advertisements. I didn't have any kind of company or sponsor behind me saying, hey, you should be a voice or anyone saying, hey, this is, um, you know, a money-making opportunity for you. No, I just had a few hundred followers and I just kind of kept going because it was fun and because it was something that I felt gave my life meaning. And then I started making videos and eventually after a few months of doing that, the videos started kind of picking up traction. So getting hundreds of thousands of views. And that was the, at the end of 2016 towards the election. And then a few months after that started happening, my husband and I moved to Texas. And that's when I got hired by The Blaze. And that was my first job in the media. So I had quit my day job when we moved. And then that was my first job in the media. And then I started getting calls from different news networks asking if I could come on and offer opinion. I was still doing my blog. I was still speaking to different organizations. I would just reach out to Republican organizations, to businesses, if they just wanted me to talk about millennials, and I would do it for free, then I would start charging a little bit. And eventually, it became it became a job. It became a full-time career. And since then, it's just kind of grown. I started working for CRTV, now as Blaze Media. Um, in 2017, I started this blog called Relatable in 2018, and that has really picked up. And I've just found this niche of young people, but particularly young women, young moms, young professional women, college-age women that care about what's going on in the news, what's going on in culture, and um, what's going, how to approach these things from a biblical perspective. That's what I try to do. I make, uh, I don't hide that at all. I'm coming from a biblical, from a conservative perspective, this is how I, as a Christian conservative, see what's going on in the world, and here are the things we should care about and why. And I've realized, I've been encouraged by the reality that there are a lot of young people, a lot of young women that care about that and are trying to make sense of the world around them uh, with a biblical worldview. So it's been fun. It's been really rewarding work, and it's been fun to see kind of how God has allowed it to evolve into what it is today. That's so neat. Allie, thank you so much for sharing that incredible journey that you went through. What an amazing ride. So on the Relatable podcast and as you travel and speak, you know, I know you are talking to so many young people and you have been very vocal about speaking to young people's fascination with socialism and even with communism. Why do you think that we're seeing this rise of an interest in socialism? Yeah, there's so many factors that play into that. I think one of it has to do, and I always want to be careful when I say this, but one reason 
certainly I think all conservatives can agree on and most parents can agree on is that the public school system, in large part, um, in large part has done a huge disservice to young people in how they teach American history, how they teach or neglect to teach the Bible, which whether or not you believe in the inerrancy and the inspiration of the Bible as, as God's written word, um, it is the most influential piece of literature, the most influential historical document that has ever existed in the history of man that has been neglected to be taught. And whether or not you want to believe this, America was based on Christian values, on biblical values, and uh, the belief in God, in the Christian God, the Judeo-Christian God, did inform uh, the founding documents, did inform how the founders built this country and the values upon which the founders built this country. And so when we neglect to teach children uh, the Bible, even if you don't teach it as a religious document, they really have no... Um, understanding of why America is the way it is um, and the principles upon which we were founded, why the documents are the way they are, even very basic principles like property rights or the idea that we were all uh, given inherent rights by a creator that cannot be given or taken away from us uh, by the government, the idea of religious freedom, the idea of freedom of speech, the idea of hard work that is a Christian value. Hard work existed before the fall of man, before sin entered the world. And so we see work and earning what you have as an inherent good um, that is good for the dignity of the human being. But when you don't have a biblical context or even just a moral context for any of the things that have made America good, so hard work, the family, raising children, getting your values uh, from the family unit, from your church, from your community, rather than from the government, or rather than from just some arbitrary idea of moral relativism, um, what you do is instead of turning to something that's bigger than yourself, like God or your church, uh, you kind of turn inward and you start um, believing in things like moral relativism and you start believing that you are your own God, the arbiter of your own truth. And I believe that self-centeredness always leads to a dependence on the government because if God is not your moral lawgiver. You are going to look to uh, the government to take care of you and to tell you what is right and wrong. So that's a lot of different factors that I could go into even more, all rolled into one. Um, I think a lot of it just has to do with how people are being raised in public school and also, like I said, the godlessness that comes with that. Every single country in which the government has grown, religious freedom and dependence and faith in God has, has waned. That's not to say that churches in China aren't very strong, because there are, they are amidst persecution. Um, but as far as it being mainstream and an accepted worldview, Christianity, uh, you cannot find that in countries in which socialism and communism have grown. And so those things, in my opinion, go hand in hand. Well, Ali, I, I certainly appreciate and love how open you are about your faith and about your conservative views. But obviously, not everyone is on board with those views. And with with being now more and more in the public eye, how do you handle uh, the backlash or the negativity that you're getting from people who don't agree with you or who even oppose you? Yeah, I think I probably get more... I definitely get more hate for being a conservative than I do for being a Christian. But it is kind of an interesting intersection because while there are a lot of conservative Christians who um, allow the Bible to inform their politics, it, it's a little bit interesting because on the one hand, I could get Christians who say, okay, I really like you talking about the Bible and I like your biblical views, but I hate your politics. I don't understand how you could vote for Donald Trump. I don't understand how you could be a conservative because their view of the Bible is different than mine. Um, and then you also have, on the other hand, you have people who say, okay, I really like your politics, but I hate when you talk about the Bible because I don't believe in the Bible and I don't believe in God. But, I mean, to, to me, it's, it's, worth, it's worth that to reach what I believe, what I believe is the group of people in this country who feel neglected feel like they are not fought for. And that's also why they like President Trump and his administration, because finally they feel like they have someone in Washington, D.C. who has their interests at heart. But as far as in the media, they feel like they are, there are so few people that advocate for them, that represent their values, and not just in a, hey, 
God, guns, and small government kind of way. There's nothing wrong with that. But someone who is outspoken about their faith, who is willing to talk about the gospel, who is willing to talk about uh, the Bible being the inerrant Word of God and um, who Jesus was and how that biblical worldview actually informs our politics, people are hungry for that. So to me, it's worth it's worth some of the hate that I'm going to get. It's worth the polarizing that I'm going to get. There's no doubt that if I drop talking about God, I would probably have a bigger audience. Or if I drop talking about politics, maybe I would have a bigger audience on that side. But to me, this intersection is really important for Christians to explore. It's really important for Christians to care about what's going on policy-wise, news-wise, culture-wise. It matters. So I'm, I'm okay with the hate. Of course, I mean, I, I, it's not fun. I, I don't like being trolled on Twitter. I don't like, um, you know, organizations on the left who paint people with traditional values as these, you know, terrible bigots that hate people, which could not be further from the truth. But, you know, it, it's kind of part of it. If you can't stand the heat, you kind of have to get out of the kitchen. And for now, for now, I do feel like God has called me um, to this arena. So we'll see. Yeah, that's wonderful. Well, I want to shift gears for a moment and talk just a little bit about work-life balance because you are a wife and a mother now, but you have this career that is continuing to take off. How how are you balancing those things? You know, I would be lying if I didn't say that it was difficult. It is difficult, especially in those first few weeks after maternity leave, figuring out how to balance it because there is a very, there's just a natural drive that we have when we become parents to, and it's good. It's, it's a wonderful thing and it should be responded to, to take care of our children and having to split time um, between that and work can be very difficult. It's not impossible, but it can be very difficult at first. And so I have tried my best um, to spend every spare ounce of energy, every spare ounce of time that I have um, just being a mom, not just being a mom, but, you know, exclusively being a mom and paying attention to my daughter and making sure that I don't miss these small moments that I know are going by so quickly. At the same time, there are times that I need help. I need help from, you know, my husband. I need help from my mom. I need help from community and, um, and, you know, just taking care of her while I am able to spend some time. I do work from home, but while I'm able to spend some time either writing or speaking or doing an interview like this. And so, um, it's good. I feel like God has given me a, a lot of, a lot of resources and a lot of help and a lot of family close by that's been able to supplement the care that I can give her. And I think that's necessary for all moms is to be able to ask for help. I mean, Hillary Clinton very rarely says anything that's true, but she did say, and probably in a different way than I believe, but she did say a long time ago, it takes a village to raise a child. And in some ways she is true in that it does take community, churches, neighbors. It takes uh, your parents. It takes your in-laws. It takes your spouse. It takes their siblings to all help and come together and to raise this child into uh, a confident person who believes uh, believes in the values that you've set forth for your family. It's difficult. It's definitely difficult to strike that balance. Um, but I'm learning and I'm trying to learn from moms who have come before me, who have worked, who've had similar or even different situations that I have more demands than I have professionally and how they did it and how they were able to maintain their job without neglecting their first responsibility, which is to their family. So I'm figuring that out, but I'm very, I'm very thankful for the situation that I have, that I get to work from home and I get to be close to her all day long, even when I'm, um, you know, doing interviews and writing and things like that. Yeah, it's very special. Well, and Allie, your, your grandmother recently passed away and I know you shared a little bit on social media just about, you know, that she meant so much to you and the important role that she played in your life and you know, as you were speaking about mentors and learning from other moms uh, and learning from your grandmother, would you take a moment uh, just to share a little bit about the important role that mentors do play in our lives and have played in your life? Yes. 
So I had a wonderful grandmother. She lived with us until I was 13 years old. And I have wonderful parents, too. Great relationship with my parents. Awesome two older brothers. But she also, not even but, but and, she was a refuge for me in a lot of ways when I was little. I have always been the way that I am. So I've always been, um, I would say, when I was little, probably the best way to describe it was argumentative. I've always been opinionated. I have always been independent. And um, that kind of built some tension for me when I was in school. I would get in trouble a lot. I might have gotten in trouble at home a lot. But she was always the person that I could go to. She would be on my side. She would believe in me. She would speak life into me and that she would encourage me. I always felt capable and loved and smart and had a lot of, I believe that I had a lot of potential when I was with her because that's just who she was. She had high expectations for the people that she loved and the people that she believed in. And she wasn't afraid to hold you to those expectations, but she was always clear that she loved us and loved me unconditionally. And we had a very special relationship that I think I've only realized since she passed over the past few weeks, just what a huge impact she had on, on me and my confidence and building my character and Um, helping me be assured in the things that I believe in enough to be able to speak out about them. And I'm so thankful for that. And so something that I encourage young people to do, it's very trendy right now to make fun of the older generations, millennials and Generation Z, make fun of baby boomers is, you know, I don't know, being out of touch or not laying a good foundation for us, which every young generation likes to criticize the older generation and thinks that we have it all figured out. But The reality is, is that whether or not that generation was perfect, which no generation is, I think we know that for sure about millennials, um, whether or not you like that generation, I do encourage young people to seek out a mentor because they've got a lot of wisdom to pass down to us. Um, Baby boomers contributed very unique things to this country. My parents, for example, I mean, my grandmother, part of the silent generation, And she was born in the Great Depression. She was raised in a cotton farm in Louisiana. She was the first woman in her family, the first person in her family to graduate from high school, first person to graduate from college. She went on to get her master's at night while she was working full-time during the day. She raised four kids. And then she set that example for my dad. My dad was the first one in his family to really kind of earn um, any any kind of income that was beyond just getting by meal to meal. And so she really left a legacy for my dad that he was able to build on. And my dad did the same thing for us, for my brothers and me, to make sure that we had a better life than they had. My parents lived, you know, in a trailer when they were first married. They got married at 19 and 20. And they just worked really hard, really hard, especially for those first 15 years of their marriage, to make sure they set a good foundation for us. And that's true of a lot of people in that generation that they maybe didn't have a whole lot of wealth or a whole lot of financial freedom when they were growing up, but they worked hard in the 80s and 90s to make sure that millennials had more options, had more privilege, if you will, not in a bad way, but in a good way, more opportunities for education, for work um, than they ever did. My parents did that really well. A lot of other parents did too. All of that said, for any flaws that baby boomers have, there are a lot of good things and a lot of good wisdom that they can pass down to us about hard work about leadership, about saving money, uh, about just being wise, and even um, politics, the importance of free markets and capitalism. I feel like since I graduated from college, I have gone to my parents way more for advice than I ever did growing up. And I guess that's just kind of how it goes. The more you know, the more you know that you don't know, and you reach out to people who know more than you to kind of guide you. But I'm I'm thankful. I'm so thankful for the wisdom that my parents have been able to give me. And I honestly feel like that has been my leg up in my, you know, short career so far. That's been my leg up has been my parents. That I have been able to go to two incredibly wise resources and say, I don't know what to do here. I don't know what choice to make. I'm at a fork in the road. Can you help me? Can you help me discern? Can you help me know what's wise here because here's what I want to do, but here are the other factors that I'm thinking. And gosh, my parents have been so helpful and so supportive in saying, here are the things that you need to think about. And giving me the freedom, though, of course, as an adult to make the decision on my own. And I encourage young people, if you have that, if you have those resources in your parents, 
go to them, even if it takes some humility to do it. If you don't have those resources in your parents, seek out a resource, seek out a mentor, whether that's at work. And so maybe it's um, your boss where you ask them to you ask them to meet with you, maybe outside of work and just pick their brain. What has made them successful? Um, how have they been able to effectively manage people? What are some mistakes that they've made that they wish they would have uh, avoided? Or maybe it's someone not at work. Maybe it's someone um, outside of work that you happen to know in the same arena or even another arena, but that you think that they can give you applicable wisdom to your life. Uh, I think that is so crucial. I, there are so there's so many things that young people can do today to stand out among their peers. Unfortunately, there is a very low bar for hard work and for wisdom uh, for millennials and Generation Z. There are very few things that you have to do to be able to stand out from uh, the other people in your generation. One of those people is seeking the wisdom of those that are older than you, those who have gone before you. Um, it takes laying down arrogance and ego, which all young people, we all have at some point, and humbling ourselves to realize we don't know everything, and there are some people who have gone before us that do. Allie, that is such practical wisdom. Thank you so much for sharing. I want to make sure that our listeners know where they can follow you and find all your videos and your podcast. Can you share some of that information? Of course. So it's called Relatable with Allie Beth Stuckey. And you can find that on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, um, Omni.fm. That's a website that anyone can go to. You can also go to blazetv.com slash Allie. I'm not the only host there. There are a lot of hosts on Blaze TV that if you get a subscription, uh, you can listen to and watch. And so that's um, a really good resource for conservative commentary from all different kinds of perspectives. Uh, you can also go to YouTube. Allie Beth Stuckey is my YouTube channel. And so you can watch there. You can listen to all of my stuff and watch all of my stuff totally for free. I'm on Instagram at um, Allie B. Stuckey, I think it is. And then Twitter, you can look up Allie Beth Stuckey. I have a Facebook page, Allie Beth Stuckey. And so um, you can go to all of those places and you'll be um, up to date with things that I'm doing and the commentary that I'm giving on my podcast. That's great. Well, Allie, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Welcome back. Now it's the part of the show where we crown our problematic woman of the week. This week, Rachel, who is our problematic woman? <laughs> our problematic woman for the week is Dr. Michelle Cretella. That's right. She is an awesome lady. She is a pediatrician and the executive director of the American College of Pediatricians. YouTube recently removed her interview with the Daily Signal discussing transgender issues and children because according to YouTube, it violated their hate speech policy. In the video, Dr. Michelle Cretella says, See, if you want to cut off a leg or an arm, you're mentally ill. But if you want to cut off healthy breasts or a penis, you're transgender. Here's a clip of what the Daily Signal had to say in response to YouTube's removal of the video. Transgender issues and children. YouTube told the Daily Signal that Dr. Cretella's remark violated a YouTube speech policy. That policy states... Hate speech is not allowed on YouTube. We remove content promoting violence or hatred against individuals or groups based on any of the following attributes. And among the list of attributes are gender identity and sex slash gender. Now let's be clear. By any objective measure, Dr. Cretella did not violate that policy. We agree with the spirit of the YouTube policy that every person should be treated with respect and that every conversation should be civil. But here's where we disagree. As our nation debates the whole issue of gender identity and parents consider whether to give their children hormone treatments, we need to have a robust, fact-filled, serious debate. Shouldn't parents have all the information they need, especially when it comes to life-altering medical decisions for their children? And who better to have... All right, Rachel... What do you think? YouTube is a private corporation, and they do have the right to decide how they run their business. But obviously, censorship is is very dangerous to society. So does this concern you that YouTube pulled the video down uh, because they claimed that what Dr. Michelle Cretella had to say was hate speech? 
I think it's very concerning, and I think we live in America, land of the free, home of the brave, where we're supposed to be able to have honest discussions about what's happening in life, um, in our country, in you know whatever societal movement that we find ourselves in. And while we happen to be um, discussing the whole question of sexuality and gender, I think it's especially concerning that a doctor – um, with so many you know, years of experience that she has, she's worked with the American College of Pediatricians, um, and she has all of this experience. And for YouTube to say what this doctor is saying in her capacity as a doctor with all of the years of experience that she has is hate speech for her to just give a professional medical opinion that that's hate speech. I mean, where are we at? I think that's extremely concerning. So, I mean, yes, it's, you know, you're exactly right, Virginia. YouTube is a private corporation. They should be able to make the calls that they want to make. However, I think we all need to take this as sort of, you know, a very clarifying moment in our culture and be like, okay, this is a doctor speaking in her capacity professionally. This she's not, you know, calling anyone out. She's not demeaning someone who, you know, identifies as LGBTQ. She's simply stating a fact as um, you know, a professional medical expert. And for her to be censored like that, I think we should all be extremely concerned by. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. And I mean she's she's not just sort of any pediatrician. I mean every pediatrician has amazing knowledge. They've gone to school. They've worked very hard. But she's the executive director of the American College of Pediatricians. She's at the top of her game. She knows what she's talking about. So you're absolutely right to just kind of instantly write her off because she said something that that YouTube uh, disagrees with and and finds hateful. Um, it's it's a little scary, and it it definitely raises a really important conversation about censorship. You know, in in theory, free speech should be something that protects against certain amounts of, of government censorship. But because platforms like YouTube are the medium which many people use to express free speech, should these platforms be held to the same standards as the government, even though they're private businesses? I think holding private companies such as YouTube to the same standard as the government would be problematic, so I'm not willing to go that far. Uh, we don't want the government telling us what videos we can and can't watch. Um, I think that would be going down a road that would be infringing on the rights of so many Americans. However, uh, Virginia, as you mentioned, it is really problematic that a company with YouTube's expansive reach is censoring what a doctor's professional opinion is to the degree that they're censoring. So I think at the very least, it's opening up a, a, a discussion that's sort of overdue about censorship and what is appropriate to discuss. Yeah. And this is a topic that we're going to continue to cover at The Daily Signal. So please be be watching our website this week, be watching our social media. Uh, we're going to be talking quite a bit about this. So, all right, that's going to be it for today on this episode of Problematic Women. Please join us next Thursday morning for a brand new edition of Problematic Women. And in the meantime, please subscribe and share. Conservatives need your support in the podcast world. And we would so appreciate a five-star review on Spotify, SoundCloud, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does make such a difference. Have a great week, everyone. Problematic Women is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is a product of The Daily Signal produced by Kelsey Bowler, Lauren Evans, and Virginia Allen. Special thanks to our editor-in-chief, Katrina Trinko. We produce Problematic Women in remembrance of our dear friend and former co-host, Bree Payton.